Hey, welcome to Equippers Church Sermon of the Week. My name is John Sparrow. I'm the lead pastor here at Equippers Church, and I'm thrilled you're tuning in. I believe the message you're about to hear is going to encourage you, inspire you, and equip you for life. If you'd like to know more about Equippers Church and ways to partner with us, please visit equipperscc.com. God bless. Let's talk about God's house, our house. Amen. We'll get that figured out. Father, thank you for this time together right now to talk about your house, talk about our house, because it's the same. And uh, we thank you for the overlap between things of heaven and things of earth. I pray today that you'd anoint our ears to hear, our hearts to perceive what your spirit is saying. And Jesus, we honor you, as it says in Hebrews, you're the son over the Father's house, and that more honor would always come to you than the house. And so we just establish that straight up, that you are head, you are Lord, your Savior, you're our King, you're our Redeemer, you're our Healer, and we worship you in your high and lifted up position, that you're in the center of the universe, <laughs> ushering things and monitoring things, you mediate our new covenant, there's so many things, Scripture reveals and declares about you, and we're just in awe to stand in your presence, to be represented before your throne of grace, and it's a place where we, it says we can find mercy and help in time of need, so I thank you that your grace is releasing to people what they need, and there's things that beyond my words that'll happen in hearts and minds today, and we always trust you for that, because there is something called a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I thank you that's released in this room and people get what they're supposed to get today. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 Give your neighbor a high five. <laughs> Maybe a different neighbor than you gave a high five earlier. <laughs> I don't know. That's so, that's so far away from the Bible talks about a holy kiss, but anyway, we we won't go there. Anyway, you know, so this started last week. I've been on an ongoing project, several projects around the house, but one of them is cleaning out my loft, which you'll see a picture of a little later. And so it's had, from my last two office moves, boxes upon boxes, they've stacked up. And, and what was originally built to be a study and sort of a secluded place has actually mostly become storage. I've always kept a little niche there, a corner there. But so going back through and starting to clean things out, I came across our house plans that were, I think, uh, drawn in 1999. No, what, we moved in. When did we move in? 2000. Yeah, so it would have been. I think they are dated 99, somewhere like that. But I laid them back out again because that was back before ministry time. I was involved in home building and design. And so I actually did the, the draft for the house and uh, then turned it over to a building. He was an architect. He was a building designer that could put the plans together and have it engineered so we could actually build it. But that process of thinking through something, you know, it, everything starts conceptually, but you bring the concept into life and then you walk it out. And the amount of details that it takes to actually see something go from a concept world into the real world. It's, it's an amazing process. And most people are inventive because they carry the nature of God. There's, there's a creativity that we carry. We're made in His image and likeness. 
But it's that process of birthing something into reality that most people, that, because they don't even or don't know the way forward or they get frustrated or another dream overtakes the last dream or another creative thought comes over the top of the last one. But there's, there's a reason things don't come into fruition. And when you look at this idea of a house and you look at the plan, you realize how much is behind it. Like the first thing that you go when the city wants to see it, you, in the site plan, you know, here's the lot. We, I split a bigger lot, so I have a long, skinny lot. And because of the, I was asking a favor of the city because it was non-conforming, that I had to give up some things in order to earn some things. And one of the things they wanted was a front end of the house, your front elevation, to look, it's kind of over by, it's not far from here, it's a few hundred yards from here, but it's in the old part of Royal Grandy, so they didn't want a modern-looking two-story. They wanted something kind of cottage front end that fit in, so we made that concession. Uh, we had to give up wider setbacks on both sides because of, again, imposing into a narrower lot in an older community. There was just things that you have to give up, but the site plan it shows in proximity of the city where exactly the project is. It talks general notes about it, but then you see this is the layout on the actual legal lot where the house is going to fit. Then the next thing they want to know is the floor plan. So you can see how detailed it is. You almost can't even see the rooms and all because of all the dimensioning and things that go on because when a carpenter begins to build, he's using the dimensions that the architect put on the paper to determine where the walls are in juxtaposition to other walls. And then the foundation, I'll go back to the floor plan later, but the foundation is, you know, that's what happens from the, where the building starts down. And all of these things, the size of the footings, the, the, all of the tie-downs, the rebar pattern, what, what strength the concrete has to be, how deep those footings have to be, the, the distance between the footings, because are there load-bearing walls that sit over the top? Things that when you walk into a house, you'd never, ever think of, right? How many of you walk into a house and say, I wonder where the a foundation that's supporting the load-bearing wall is in this house, Right? If, if you watch uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines with the fixer-upper, you know that's his part, right? He has demolition day, and so they're tearing things out, and sometimes he'll talk about where the wall goes and the structure of the house. But the reality is everybody waits for the end. Everybody wants to see how she's going to decorate and the color and the finish, not, not mindful of everything that's gone in behind the walls. The, the, the new sheetrock covers up all the other stuff that's had to be fixed and repaired and, and reconciled together for the sake of the building. Well, the foundation's one thing, and in my case, it's a flat-level lot, but when you put a, a, a house on a hill, it creates a whole other set of problems. You'll have, you'll have three sheets of details with, with uh, you know, construction details of the footing and, and how the house is going to be tied together, the, the beams get tied together. It's a whole other process when it's set on a hill. Or if it's in intense weather, or if it's in a floodplain, that it creates a whole different set of circumstances that people may not even think about when they're, they're walking into it. Then, then somebody's got to look out and say, okay, based on the footprint and how the rooms go together, well, what does the house want to look like? When somebody drives up, what, what's going to be the appearance? How are the roof lines? How are you going to detail your, your, uh, your roof where it ties into another roof? And you've got that whole set of things. And then because of that, then there's sections. 
You want to be able to say and, and write on the paper where, well, what, are these going to be vaulted ceilings or are they going to be flat ceilings? And over our house, because it's long and skinny and we designed it to have a lot of people in it, we wanted more air, so we went with vaulted ceilings. And that's what this detail is about, cross-sections cut through the house so you can see what's flat, what's raised, and then from that they can design the trusses that become part of this next slide, which is the roof framing plan. And again... Our house, fairly straightforward, trusses, some stick framing, as they'd say. But if this was going to be built in Duluth, Minnesota, or North Dakota, all of this would have a significant upgrade. The strength of the roof, the pitch of the roof, everything because of snow loads, there's a whole other complexity that comes in that people walking through a front door and looking at the color of the carpet and the, the color of the tile and the decorations on the wall, they don't take it into account all of what's had to go into it to make sure it's a safe and sound house. Amen? So then you get the layout, and then you have to also remember, here's a list of all the doors and windows, and the size of the doors and windows, and, and by number, where they're going to go in the plan, because that all has to be ordered. Somebody has to know if they open from the right or the left, do they swing in, do they swing out? Does the window lift up this way, or is it, is it a side swinging? What's the trim color? What's the thickness of the wall? All of those things are, are specced out in that window schedule. And then in my house, it's fairly simple, straightforward, because of, you know, it was a straightforward deal. But then these are all the, here's all the construction details. If you're building the house, you'll look at the floor plan, and you, there'll be a note, and it takes you to this sheet. And so you have to read the sheet, because this dictates of how the connections come together. You know, if, if you just got a pile of building materials and that becomes a house, the reason it becomes a house is because it's connected. And each one of these specify how the connections work and how the fasteners and the length of the fasteners and the, the nailing pattern, how far the nails have to be together to put your whole house together. How many ever think of that <laughs> when you walk in a house? How many even don't care? The main thing is that the thing doesn't fall in, Right? And then it stays square, and, and the doors open and close without catching and snagging. And then you go from details, which sometimes you can have three and four, and I've been on projects, you've got six pages of details. And then there's the notes. How many know the devil's in the details, right? And so it's lawsuits. So, so all of these are super important, and somebody, they put them in matter, very matter-of-factly, but you're, you're responsible if you're the contractor to read all of this. And if you don't, you can be held accountable for something that you don't even realize you signed to because it was in the details. And so you're responsible to know all those things that go into affecting the time of the house, the building of the house, the procedure, all of those things contained there. And then, then you have retaining wall or block fence details on how that's going to happen, the things that go on around it. And then lastly, not lastly, but you have your energy compliance, which now that's like three times the amount of pages that would be there. Your structural calculations, an engineer's got to look at it. Say, make sure that the building designer, when he determined how far you could span with a piece of lumber, that it's strong enough to withhold those spans. And there's a lot that goes into it. So an engineer has to support the calcs and sign off on it. And then there's lastly, this is the lastly, then you have a page that shows how your house and your property is going to interface with the city. 
And so this spells out your dry vapor and your curb detail and your, how, your setback requirements and how your house is going to interface with the city in approach and, you know, your drive, all of those things that that's connected. So you have your house, its own plans, everything that has to do with building it, but then how does it interface with the, the public works and what the city's built? How many know that's a pretty detailed process? Somebody has to think through it all. Somebody has to think on each one of those parts in their own expertise and make a determination or a decision. At the same time, with the technical knowledge is being run here, then the architectural, the, the artsy part, you could say, superimposes over the top. So it's a marriage together between art and science, between details and form, details and imagination, details and design. But it, but it all starts, as everything does, actually, if we look at the book of Genesis, first we see in Genesis 1, it's, God says this. He says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So the co- concept of the Trinity, Elohim, the plural name for God, is found in Genesis 1, in the let us, plural, make man in our image and likeness. But in chapter 2... It goes from Elohim, the plural God, to the Lord God, singular. And that's the part where we see man was formed in the dust and and life was actually breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. Conceptually, Genesis chapter 1, we were in the heart of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. But Scripture says, but Jesus, all things were made by him, through him, and for him. He's the Lord God. He did the forming, and he breathed, and he was eyeball to eyeball because he had a form that he could take on that was human-like in that instance of creation. But we actually were conceived in the heart of the Godhead of the Trinity, but Jesus became the architect. Proverbs 8 says that too. It says that numerous places. Jesus is the architect. But the design, the conceptual design, happened in the heart of the Trinity, That's got consequences that we don't have enough days to talk about. (laughs) Amen? But the idea that things start in sketch form first. So when you're laying out, you basically have your dimension of how long the house is going to be, and you know it's long and skinny. But there's something in your mind that says, I want this house, this property, this building, I want it to be like this. And you, you start working through What's the main concept behind it? Well, for us, it was the idea of being able to entertain. That we, had a, that we built right next to the high school. We wanted a house where the kids felt comfortable to be and to bring their friends. That was like, we want it to be inclusive. We want it to be for entertaining. And so that was our main priority. So when you come in the house, you go, when you, and you come to the left, so there's pictures included, not... But you come to the left, and there's a dining area, and then off to this is a gathering space. It's a patio. We have chairs that are stashed right around this wall, so you could put more people around and get 10 to 12 people outside because we wanted to be a meeting place. Right here, we wanted a counter so we could serve food all the way around it to the gathering of people. We have a nook. It's another gathering place over in the corner. And then when you walk, you keep walking through. These couches can be spun back, and then you can put chairs. We keep chairs back over here. You can fill all of this with chairs. We've had over 50 people in the house before. You keep walking on your way back, and there's a pool table. Well, we don't play pool, 
But we, we didn't, I seriously don't, I don't play pool. I get beat every time somebody comes to my house. But we didn't do it for us, right? We did it because we were hosting at that time high school and young adults, and they liked to play pool. So it was set up for that. And then if you keep walking past the pool table, then there's another outside space, and then we have a badminton court, which we do play badminton, amen? I was the singles champion up till a few years ago, but that's changed. So, so the idea was it was a place for gathering, as a place for people. And then one thing we did, like coming back to the house, we came in, we did create this small living room, and it's off to the side because we felt like if people were gathering, and this has happened several times, somebody needs to say, hey, can we talk for a minute? We can break off from this communal group and come up here in the living room and sit around and, and have a private conversation. But that's what was in mind, is that... You, there was a, a separate space for more privacy. And so that's that little space that's off to the right. And then lastly, in the middle of the house, because in the last three houses before that, I've always had a, a loft space. And I've cut little attic holes with ladders. I've done different things, but I always had kind of a private prayer loft space. But I just say because of change, evolving values and you know, our, our church experiences, our spiritual experience, like with this house, the only thing I can think of, just want a connective place, including, I, I normally would have not put windows in the loft, like that would have been seclusion, I could have dropped the trap door, nobody could hear me, I could hear nobody else, but I, I was in a different space, it's like, no, I want my kids to be able to hear me if I'm upstairs, if somebody needs to call to me, I want to have the communication that my values of being Finding God by being alone in a small space, those values shifted. It's like, actually, I started finding God in people. I started finding God in connection with people, that my spirituality changed, and a lot of it had to do with experience, and some good, some bad, some scars, some blessedness, but a lot of my idea of church, people, connection, our house, it all came out of a, a value shift of prior experiences to new experiences. But like case in point, so we lay that out based on our idea of what we wanted our house to look like. And so if you look at this section, you can see that, well, there's the attic space. There's the stair, that little ladder would go up here, and that's where my, my loft space would be. And it's perfect. Like, it's big enough. It's connected. It's all the things that I would want. But what if I came to the job site, and I'd been gone a few weeks, and I come back, and the builder says... Well, we put a prayer loft in for you. And we say, we know you're a pastor and you should be praying more. And you really shouldn't be. You need more away alone time. You need to be like off to the side. You, you need a prayer loft. So we just decided it was a good idea. So we added a prayer loft on your house. And you know, it might be kind of cool. Like you get high enough, you can see views. Like I'm not totally bent or burnt about that. But the idea is that somebody added to the concept of what I had in mind. And they, and they stuck something on there, oftentimes with good reason, oftentimes it's a reflection of their own values, but they think, that would be really cool, so I'm gonna put it on you because I know it would be really cool for me. How many have ever been there? How many know it's really hard to buy other people artwork, yeah. right? <laughs> well, well, so it's the idea that you have a concept, but it can, your concept can be added to by somebody, good intentions, et cetera, but it can change what your value system was, what you were thinking, what your design, what was running through your heart. What's well, interesting when it comes to God and his building and things, it's just interesting. He said, for we are God's fellow workers, you're God's field, you're God's building. 
According to the grace which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on its foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Well, it's sort of not, that's, that's a heavy scripture, right? And, I mean, because it said you're God's building and, and you're God's house. Paul said, I feel like I'm the wise master builder. Like through my relationship with God, I feel like he told me what God's house is supposed to look like. And I've laid the foundation and now other people get to build. And so everybody gets to build. Everybody gets to add to the plan. But the, the, the important thing is, is that you understand that you're building on the foundation. Amen? Like the, that what you add is connected to the foundation for the strength of the house. It's important that you would have an understanding of what, what's the theme of this house. Like, I don't, want, I don't want to be having an eclectic mess. I want to have things, even though I like eclectic interior... I, the idea of the house connecting, especially structurally, is super important. And Paul said, I'm a wise master builder. I laid that foundation, which is Jesus, and he's the cornerstone, but people can add to it. But he just said, but just understand, what you build with and what you add is going to be tested. So it, it can't be too random. You have to sort of think through it. Because if it's super random and the materials that you add, the stray and the stubble part, that doesn't really hold up, like there's going to be a time that gets tested by fire. And, and you know what? That's the encouraging thing. It's not eternal damnation. He said your work gets burned up, but you'll be saved. In other words, that's that two part in the book of Revelation. There's the book of life. And it says, then the other books were open. The books that were like, what did we do with what God gave us? So he's addressing that reality that there's the book of life, which your names have been enrolled in because you're born again. Jesus has accepted you and the beloved. You, you've opened your heart to him, all that. You're great. You're fine. You're safe. Awesome. But with that, when it comes to his house and what he's doing in the earth, all of us get an opportunity to build. And we're encouraged to build, but there's just that exhortation. And then he said... Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles, this is interesting, the temple of God, God will destroy. Those are the same word. Defile and destroy, the same word. And it's actually a word that means to pineth away or to wither or to shrivel. And so he said that everybody gets a chance to build, but you, Jesus is actually the new temple. We're connected to Jesus as the temple of God. Collectively, we're the building. But he said, if we defile, if we cause it to shrink or to shrivel or to wither, he said, that's the consequence. That'll happen to you. Like, if you cut off God's plan, then you get cut off from God's plan. If you, if you cut off yourself from God's house and you go uh, isolated from God's house, the cause and effect is that isolation begins to have a reflection in your life. And it was, it's a withering effect is what he said. And so that, why that's important is because it affects all of us. Those are scriptures that affect every believer. So when you think about the house, you don't want to wither it. 
You don't want to shrivel it. You want to build it so that there is a, a flow back that causes you and your house to be built. You're in your house to, fl- to flourish. That's the idea. So it said, okay, we want to be builders. We want to add gold. We want to add precious stones. We want to add valuable things that don't get burned up in a fire, blown away by a wind, storm-proof things that become permanent in the house of God. So what are those details look like? Well, Jesus talked about his house in Matthew 21, 12, or the Father's house. He said, then Jesus went in the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers, money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. So we already see in that verse, so he had an idea what his house was supposed to look like. And somebody came and added hay and stubble to it, right? Now, the idea of money changers, back in the time of Herod's temple, when Jesus would have walked, they added a whole bunch to the temple. Like, he, he put up these walls and uh, backfilled. Amazing how they did it without heavy equipment. But backfilled, and it really expanded the area around the temple. And so that's where the different courts evolved. And one of the courts was the courts of the Gentiles. So you had the court of women, and you had the priest's court. You had the, the court where men would gather. And these other various meeting places, all of them were within different fencings and different designations. But in the court of the Gentiles, that's where people from all over the world came to visit God's house. And there, there was an attraction to it because by then, and it would have been the work of the Holy Spirit, the, let's say, fame or the story the mystique, the specialness of this special people, Israel, and this God who'd done supernatural signs and wonders. By now, that story had gotten around the whole world. People came to Jerusalem to experience this miracle, mystique, incredible thing. Like, this is the place that through those walls, that there's actually a glow over a box where God says that he sits in his presence, that The unknown God in most cultures and and places actually has a residence. And it was a great mystery, a great drawing effect of the temple. People came from all over the world to see and to worship there. So when they came up the steps to worship there, they were met with a group of people. They said, first of all, that the Jerusalem coin is different from the rest of Israel coin. You have to exchange your money here. That we we only represent or recognize the temple shekel in this area, and so if you're going to buy anything, if you're going to buy doves or something that you're going to worship, which you have to do, first you have to exchange your money. You have to exchange the Israel shekel for the temple shekel. Well, it has a different weight and a different value. So they created that so they could profit just from swapping money right there at God's house. And then in addition to that, they sold them turtle doves and, and different sacrifices. And so people who are just showing up at the intrigue and the, the mystery of God's house and things that they heard about his name, they're encountering a group of people that have a whole different agenda, a whole different motive. So they're saying, hey, if you're, if you're going to have a, an offering that actually cleanses your sins and has to look like this, and this is how we do it, and this is what it's going to cost. So all of a sudden, it wasn't about just people doing trade, it's all of a sudden the purpose that God had for his house is being interrupted by a whole other agenda and a a desire to profit on the people who came to worship. Amen? So So that's the issue. And it was set up in this area called the court of the Gentiles. 
2018, I was with my twin brother. We went to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and it was on a, a feast day to Buddha. And so we're, we're way around the back, but on this side and all around the other side, they're selling finches because to honor Buddha, you, you buy finches, and then you can buy one, two, five, a dozen. I think that's a dozen. And, that, and then you release them to Buddha as part of a worship celebration to him. So we just did a prophetic act, and I bought a bunch of finches, and we opened them up. It's actually part of a video clip. We just declared God's freedom over Cambodia and his blessing, that it was symbolic for us of being released from bondage, and we just did a prophetic act. Amen? So I, you, can do, you can do finches while a Buddhist is doing finches. He can be doing it as a worship act to Buddha. You can be doing it under the anointing of the Holy Spirit for a whole other purpose. Amen? But if somebody said, well, Pastor Pat's worshiping Buddha, letting finches go, you, you can miss the whole picture. Amen? Why? Because it's, it's the motive, the intent of the heart is the whole different. So we see in that scripture, God's intent is, number one, his house is to be a house of prayer. Then it goes on, it says... Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. It's in the same passage. So we can say from that, God's house is to be a house of healing. And then from the same passage, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said, do you hear these, what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read that out of the mouths of babe and nursing infants you perfected praise? So we saw it's a house of prayer, it's a house of healing, but he also intended God's house should be full of new believers. It's out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. Accepted in his house is brand new. Those people who came from other countries because they were desperate, they wanted to find the God of Israel and, and to try to tap into what that mystery was and what was that power and what was that promise and what's this thing about covenant. And, and God wants a pathway into his house for those people to be able to be gathered. And he said, my house will be a house of praise. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, I was ordained praise. But I like this other point in meditating through this. God's house is to have such an emphasis on Jesus that it makes religious people who want the spotlight indignant. Amen? That it, it was, they were indignant because praise was going to Jesus. And he manifested authority in his father's house, and he flipped over the tables, and he basically was saying, I know what it's supposed to look like. I'm the architect. And you've changed the design, and you've put things where they shouldn't be, and you've changed the emphasis over the house, and I'm here to flip tables and to tell you this is what it's supposed to be lo look like. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of healing. It's supposed to be a house of connection. It, it's, it's supposed to be a place where people can gather and, and actually encounter the mysteries of God. And it's for babes and sucklings. It's for a place where they can spontaneously praise and know that it's right. And we know that Jesus was a man of prayer. Like, this is an important little side note I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. But these are all the passages other than the Gethsemane experience. When people think about Jesus praying... They usually think, oh, he prayed in the garden, great sweat, sweated great drops of blood, and he was saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. It's in all four of the Gospels, and so it's, it's the picture that you have of Jesus praying. It's the one the artists paint. He's in agony in the garden. There's a lot of other places that talk about where he prayed. So it says Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was open, Matthew 14, 23. After he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. 
Next, after bidding them farewell, he left the mountain to pray, Luke 6, 12. It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Mark 1, 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 5, 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke 9, 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? There's other places, but if you look at the scriptures that specifically talk about Jesus and him praying, it really isn't connected to his house. Like most of the time when he's praying, he's alone. Most of the time he's praying, he's on a mountain or he's, he's out in the wilderness. It, but he separated himself to pray. And I think about, because this is part of where we're going, is thinking about current culture versus Bible culture, especially gospel culture. You think about his prayer life, it never goes into detail what happened to when he prayed. Like one time we know after his temptation, said the angels came and strengthened him. But the other times it said Jesus went and prayed and then he came back. And you see all the verses, they're almost all just one sentence, one line verses about his prayer life. He went off and he prayed alone, then he came back. He went to the mountain, he prayed alone. He went over there, he prayed alone. He went to the wilderness, he prayed alone. And then he came back and then we see the results is that actually, in interpreting it in context, what we were really seeing, Jesus went off, prayed alone, communicated with the Father, strengthened himself, and got back on mission. That his prayer life was in connection to being strengthened, to be dialed, to be hearing strong, so he could be back in mission. But the emphasis really doesn't talk about his prayer and what happened during the prayer. There's no, there isn't one passage that says, and Jesus went and spent time on the mount with God and got wrecked. And came back the next morning, right? I mean, it's good because we're all for that. But, it, but it, the emphasis isn't about the prayer experience and what happened in the prayer. It's always he went and prayed. And as a result of the prayer, we came back. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He, you know, he went and witnessed in the far places. He encountered the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was all about prayer in the context of the mission that he was on. But it talked very little about the prayer experiences. And I just think that's worthy to think about. And then it goes on. We do see two things that we can say were part of his practice. Luke 4, 16. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So he did have a custom that on the Sabbath he would go to the synagogue. And oftentimes they probably acknowledged that he was a rabbi. So he actually got to read. He got to do the stuff. But he did show up and said his custom was go to the Sabbath, the gathering place every week. And Mark 14, 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So when he's gathered together, I'm sure they prayed. And I'm sure in this conclusion, it said they sung a hymn, which was a typical thing that would happen in the beginning and the end of a gathering, that they would sing a hymn to God. So there was those things that we get glimpses of, but we don't hear a lot about. So now, if you're back to the idea... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then we built those other things. In God's original blueprint for his house, there was healing, there was praise, there was indignant against competition for Jesus. There was those ingredients. But if you do this, if you read the Gospels and Jesus uses the words, it is written, you can go. You, there's a little side note. And you can see he was quoting from some other place in Scripture. Apostle Paul does that. It's written in the law, blah, blah, blah. 
And so usually there's a little reference that you can say he was quoting from that prophet or from that place in the Old Testament. Well, if you look at this scripture, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and you, you go, go to the origin of it, it's two places. It's in Isaiah 56.1. So he said, well, we want to know what his idea was when he drafted his house. Like, what was working in his mind? We see in the New Testament, it's a house of prayer, it's a house of healing, it's a house of praise, it's a house for new believers, it's a place to be indignant against those who compete for Jesus' place in the church. But here we can connect the dot back to Isaiah. It says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. I don't have time to go off on this, but again, all this came out of my own meditation, and I guess you'd say God had his finger on me. And so the idea of these two side by side, the idea of keep justice and do righteousness, it's, it would be reversed, but to do righteousness is all about the things that we do to show God that we love him, and keeping justice has to do with your neighbor. Like, uh, if, you, if you go through, you can see these words paired against each other. That's just a sampling where the idea of righteousness and justice, justice is being paired, paired together. And, and then when you're in your Bible study program, you go over and there's different commentaries. There's some contemporary commentaries. There's old contemporary. And so you're reading those things. And the points that they made was, and, and it's like so present today. It's like it would even be like in this room. Is when you think about justice and the idea of what we do towards our neighbor, and we think about righteousness, the things that we do to demonstrate righteousness towards God, the point is for them, as they said, the liberal church traditionally has been more about justice. And the conservative church has been more about righteousness. And so you hear that today about the emphasis of the truth. Like the truth and righteousness are super high values. Like what we see in the scripture, what we know, behavior tied to righteousness, that that's a high value point for the conservative church and primarily too for charismatics. Like most of us would fall in that category. The emerging church and in their thing, the liberal church, the idea of social justice, the idea of human rights and, and looking on human beings equally and, and all of the things that have to do with social justice is very much built into the emerging generation. And over and over, you see them paired together. God says both and. It's not an either or. It's a both and. You need to understand each other's perspective and you need to see how people are feeling and thinking about that. Understand, in my house, it's a both and. I care about social justice. I care about sex trafficking. I care about the poor. I care about refugees. I care about people who are down and out. I care about drug addicts. I care about people who are depressed and oppressed and, and under those social things. I, I care about that. God's heart is huge, and he's saying to the church and back then to Israel, do something about it. And then he says, I care about righteousness. I care about that your heart is clean and that your hands are clean and that yourself, that you're walking in repentance and the blood of Jesus has cleansed you. I, I care about righteousness. Righteousness is important. They're supposed to go side to side. They're not supposed to compete. They're not supposed to exalt one issue over another, right? In God's house, it's to be blended and equally important. He said both of them are important because he said, I'm about ready to release my plan. 
In Romans or Psalms 97, too, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Both together, they're the foundation. I care about people. I care about your neighbor, but I care about you. Yeah. Amen? I care about my love relationship. I want to affirm you. I want to uh, create a security in you that you are eternally with me, and you're my son and my daughter. All of the stuff that's been released in worship in the last decade or so, not all that about assurance of who we are in him. God's all for that. Then he said, don't forget your neighbor, right? Don't turn your, na- your nose away from people who are in need. Help people who, who need help, amen? It's a both-and scenario. And they, now going back to that scripture, this is, this is like God's thought. When he sat down and he had his tracing paper and he started sketching out what his house is going to look like, he's, here's what the thoughts are running in his mind. Don't let the son of the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what's pleasing to me and hold fast my covenant, even them I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. That's interesting. My house shall be called a house of prayer, and it says for all nations. In Matthew, it says the same thing, but we usually say this, God's house is a house of prayer. We could also say God's house is a house for all nations. What should have the emphasis? Is it a house of prayer? Is it a house for all nations? If you go back to the origin, it was more of an issue of gathering and acceptance and inclusion than it was about the topic of prayer. I'm not critiquing prayer. I'm saying we need to understand the inclusiveness that God has on his heart. We need to understand that prayer, worship, and gathering, and the stuff that we do in the house, the end result should be, hey, this is to the nations. This is to the unborn, the unsaved. This, is, this extends God's plan of salvation. What was in his heart was inclusion. But the eunuch, the idea that he said he'd include the eunuch in Deuteronomy, the eunuch who was that became mutilated or castrated as a result of an accident. He wasn't allowed in the congregation. Unborn, if you were unborn, or sorry, not unborn, but if you were born, quote, unquote, a bastard, that you were illegitimate as a man or dog, you could never be in the assembly. You couldn't worship in God's house to up to 10 generations. That kind of curse came on you. It's hard to explain at another time why in that window of time God gave that criteria. But Isaiah was prophesying of a time when the eunuch... When the, uh, you know, the um, child that was born illegitimate, they would find a place in God's house. And Isaiah was saying, it's an inclusive thing. God's saying this to the eunuch. Hey, if you come and you have a heart that wants to worship the Lord, if you want to keep a Sabbath and, and flow with what's taking place, you're accepted. And he said, I'm going to make for you a place in my house equal to it. Actually, he says, greater than sons and daughters. What is God thinking? What, what is, when he's laying out a master plan, he's looking down through the ages and his spirit comes over holy men and they began to write the scriptures. What was Isaiah seeing? Was it my house should be a house of prayer where people come to pray? Or do people come to pray because it's a house of inclusion? And that God's gathering from the nations, people, to come and find salvation through Jesus Christ. Oh. So, 
Acts 15, 16. After this, I will return. This is just another point, and that we're, not, we're, we're heading to the finish line. Acts 15, 16. After this, I will return, and I'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. So you go into the tabernacle of David. This is amazing. So, ah, shababa. Okay. So these are things that it says in the Old Testament about that. There was sacrifices of praise were made there. They clapped their hands. They lifted their hands in worship. They shouted. They danced. They sought the Lord. They played their instruments. So it, that's a New Testament picture of like contemporary worship. In the, in the prayer movement, in the worship movement of the last several decades, we've drawn our origin out of the fact that God was going to raise up again the tabernacle of David. Because you don't see this pattern in Jewish worship. You don't see it actually in early church worship. And we were really slow until people began to teach about the, the idea of the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Worship came back into the church really, really slow. But there was this revelation of the tabernacle of David that released people to sing, praise, clap, dance. You know, it, it's what we enjoy is because out of the idea that God was going to raise up again a pattern like David had in the tabernacle is why we do what we do. But it's interesting that he said he was going to raise up the tabernacle of David. All these things took place in it. But then the verse goes on, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. So his purpose of the tabernacle of David wasn't just about releasing the things. It wasn't just about so we could find contact, so we could find connection to do the stuff that we do in the house of God, which is awesome. That increases our experience. We touch and feel God's presence. It's absolutely awesome. But you know what was running behind it? So that mankind may seek the Lord. So that those who aren't currently included will be included. It's just a side note. Commentary, Hebrew commentary, really believes that, that David was actually an illegitimate son. Because he said, in one place I was conceived in iniquity, in another place my mother conceived me in iniquity. So he would have been one of those guys who would have been a bastard. Based on that, he wouldn't have had access to normal worship. He wouldn't have access to the sacrifices. Maybe that's why, and they said he was the last shepherd, not included in the family dealings. And when all the brothers came to see if that was who God was anointing, he wasn't included. Because he was the guy, the little guy out in the back, the younger one. But he was the outcast. And so it's possible, there's, there's some holes in the, the idea, but it's possible through Scripture and the reasoning behind it that that was the case. But now all of a sudden, he finds himself as king, and the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwells has been stolen. He said, I'm going to go get it back. First time failed, second time he brought it back. And he's parading with God's, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence behind him. And he's so excited, he strips down and he begins to spin. He begins to dance and whew, praising God. Like, in other words, God has affirmed me. God has given me the privilege to usher his presence. And he sets up a tabernacle with no holy of holies. He didn't put a curtain in it. 
He said all the people can come and gaze on the presence of God and worship him openly. And it's so awesome. I'm going to set it up 24-7 every day of the week, every day of the year, forever and ever. Wow. What a response. But what if working in him was, what a contrast. I was cut off as an illegitimate son, and now I've been made legitimate. I'm so grateful. I'm going to do this forever. That's the spirit in God's house. That's the spirit of the openness of his heart, the openness of his doors, and what he wants the openness of his people to be. We're going to do this stuff. And we love this stuff because it facilitates his presence. It facilitates his power. It facilitates his healing. We need to be a people of prayer. Jesus was. But it's not the end in itself. It's a mission. He's doing it because. Amen. He's doing it because. I want everybody to know. I want, I want the world to know who Jesus is. And so you're my interaction and I just see this as God just saying, hey, look, I, he'll go to my word. He knows that's it. He's, he gets me when he takes me there. He go, go to my word. Just see, revisit these points again. Revisit, revisit your values. Like, do you get what's under thing? Here, look at the house. Remember when you laid out your house, what you were thinking? And it's exactly how it came out. Gathering places all over. There are private ones. There's more public ones. You, you, you were intentional when you did that. He said, so was I. This was running behind the theme. I want to gather people in my house. I want it inclusive. I want people to be able to seek the Lord and to find them. So you're in my heart, how we greet people, how we love people, how we encourage people. That's part of what his heart is for the house of God. Amen? Because we all have to, we all get to add building materials. We all get to add. So I, we can add joy. We can add faith. We can have strength. We can, we can add those things that it would cause that attraction to the house of God. Amen. I think I'm going to end there. I've gone too long. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Josiah, where are you? He's coming. Yeah, that, the, other, the end's really good, too, but this is fine. I feel it. Amen. When it shifts, it shifts. He's the king, not me. Amen. Well, I pray that you are feeling encouraged, inspired, and equipped to take on whatever you may be facing in this life. And hey, why do you consider joining us? We meet every Sunday at the Clark Center in Arroyo Grande at 10 a.m., and it's always a good time. We'd love to have you with us. And for any more information, ways you can partner with us, please visit equipercc.com. God bless. Ready.